Please turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke. We continue in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, picking up with verse 37 this morning, verse 37 through verse 45. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Last week, we read together Luke's account of the transfiguration. That's the context of this passage that we move into today. The passage has two parts. The first you'll see in verse 37 down to the middle of verse 43. And that's the story of this boy being healed of an unclean spirit. The boy is possessed by a demon and he is brutally abusing this child. Jesus' disciples are not able to cast the demon out. It's back in the first verse of chapter 9 that we find the context for Jesus' disciples' failure to be able to heal this boy and it explains why Jesus says something here in this passage that might be somewhat confusing. Do you remember what Jesus says there? He says, the the, the man who brings his son to Jesus says, Jesus, I'm coming to you because my boy is possessed and your disciples aren't able to do anything about it. And then Jesus says something, and we'll scratch our heads about it if we don't remember verse 1 of this chapter. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. That's the first part of this passage. The second part picks up with the second half of verse 43 and goes down to verse 45. And here Jesus says something about his death. 
Those two incidents, as we just read through the passage, may seem like they are unrelated, but they are very much connected to one another. Both parts revolve around the disciples' inability. First, the inability of the disciples to heal this boy, and then the inability of the disciples to understand and believe what Jesus was saying would soon happen to him. In both cases, we're seeing a battle to believe the truth of what Jesus has said. The disciples are struggling to believe what Jesus has said about their ability and authority to heal and to cast out demons, and they are struggling to believe what Jesus is now saying about his coming death. Now, he's already started to teach them about his own death. We've seen this before. We've seen that even in this same chapter, if you look back at verses 21 and 22, we read that he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. This, of course, follows Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's to that that Jesus responds, yes, but the Son of Man must suffer. So he's already started to teach them about his coming death, but they're having a difficult time understanding what he's saying, a difficult time accepting what he is saying. They don't understand how he can be both the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, and suffer and die. That doesn't make any sense to them. So what we have going on in this passage is a battle about belief. This is a struggle that the disciples faced over and over again, and it's a struggle that we face as well. For those of us who have come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, for those of us who understand what the Scripture teaches about his lordship and his sovereignty, we sometimes have trouble reconciling what we know to be true with what we see happening in our own lives. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we need to bring a question of our own to the text and allow the text to provide an answer. And here's the question for you today. Do you believe that God is sovereign over your troubles? Or when you are in the midst of your troubles, do you wonder if your troubles are bigger than God? And if you don't wonder if your troubles are bigger than God, do you act like they are? I think this passage has something to teach us about that struggle. And it's a struggle that most, if not all of us, face from time to time. There are a number of ways in which this passage addresses those questions. And the first way it does that is to remind us, as if we need reminding, that we live in a fallen world. This world is not what it ought to be. You see this almost immediately. If you look at verse 37, Jesus and his disciples had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory had shone through And we read in verse 37, on the next day, 
When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Luke is reminding you that they've just come down from the mountain where Peter and James and John have seen the glory of Christ. They've seen him transfigured. They've seen his glory on display. And coming down from the mountain and seeing, having seen that, now a large crowd greets them. And a man, verse 38, from the crowd begins shouting, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is only a boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out. They couldn't. Luke is leading you from the Mount of Transfiguration right back into the troubles of everyday life. Because you can't stay on the mountain. Those of us who are in Christ understand this. We may have had some wonderful spiritual experience. We have felt so close to our Lord. And we refer to those things as mountaintop experiences. And then real life intrudes. Jesus took on humanity He lived in that humanity. His incarnation was not spent on the mountaintop with his glory shining forth. That was a momentary exception. Instead, he lived down here with us in this fallen world. He spent his life in the dirt and the messiness of our lives. He went around healing the sick and casting out demons and coming to the aid of those who were trapped in their struggles and their bondage to sin and to Satan. That was his ministry. Day after day after day. We can't look at Jesus up on the mountain with Elijah and Moses and say, well, that's who he is, that's who he always is, and that's What he always did, he's somehow above us, he's apart from us, he's up there and we're down here. That's not the case. The norm is not what happened up on the mountain. And Luke wants to bring us back into the world after seeing Christ's glory. The norm is not what happened up there where Jesus' glory is apparent to everyone, where he converses with Moses and Elijah. The norm is what Jesus met when he came down the mountain. It's trouble. We live in a world of trouble. Now here's the problem. When we're not in trouble, or at least when we're not aware of how much trouble we're in, we begin to think that's the norm. So we quickly forget the reality of our situation. 
And we fall into this trap of believing that life is supposed to be good and easy and pleasant and trouble-free. And that the unusual experience is when bad things come into our, to, to our lives. And when trouble comes along, then we're surprised and we start asking why. And we begin to protest. This isn't supposed to be happening to me. Are you special? We demand to know why this is happening. And we start wondering if God is really in control. Because if God were in control, we think this shouldn't be happening. Because we've become confused as to what constitutes the norm. But here's the reality. It would make far more sense for us to ask why when things are going well rather than when things are going wrong. Even that phrase is a little weird when you understand the reality of this world. We talk about things going wrong. Are they? Is it wrong when you live in a fallen world and bad things happen? That's the way it is. Life is difficult. Because we're sinners. And we live in a world that is marred by sin. And Luke's reminding us of that. He reminds us of that by taking us down off the mountain and back into reality. This is what people were dealing with in the first century. And so through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly dealing with demonic activity and, and freeing people from that bondage. His disciples are doing it too, but sometimes they have a difficult time. It's when Jesus comes down off the mountain and we see him facing this issue of the Father and the Son, or we see Jesus dealing with people who need to be healed, or we see Jesus dealing with people who are in the bondage of sin. That's the norm. That's life. But it takes us by surprise. We need to pause and remember that that is the world in which we live. We live in this fallen world. We don't live in the world of the age to come when all our suffering is going to be taken away and there will be no more tears and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more trouble. This is not that yet. Praise God, this is going to be transformed into that. But we're not there yet. We're going through those seasons of life where we experience trouble. And when we, by God's grace, go through a season in which we experience a respite from trouble, we need to see those periods as a blessing from God, giving us rest 
until the next thing comes along. In this present world, trouble is not the exception, it's the rule. And so we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. We live in a fallen world, and Luke is reminding us of that, even as he brings us down off the mountain, back into the normal situations of life, where there is this man who is bringing his child to Jesus. (coughs) Because this man and his son are experiencing demonic possession, which was their experience of the reality of this fallen world. I hear myself saying these things this morning, and it makes me stand here and wonder, why are you here this morning? Did you come to have your ears tickled or to hear truth? Because you might not want to hear what I'm telling you. But you need to hear what I'm telling you. What we want is not always what we need. And what we need is not always what we want. And what we need is the truth. And this word is the truth that we need. Otherwise, we are deceiving ourselves. The word which I've been commissioned to preach this morning from this particular passage is that we live in a fallen world. That is the truth. That is the word of God for us this morning. But, wonderful word, but, one of the greatest words in scripture, but, That's not all the truth. And it's not all the truth that Luke and the Holy Spirit have for us here in this passage. One truth is that this world is fallen, but what is equally true is that God is sovereign. And those things go together. Look at verses 38 through 40 again. The man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. In many ways, it's a familiar story. Someone comes to Jesus because their child is in trouble. We have seen this before. The daughter of Jairus, the nobleman's son at Capernaum, the daughter of the Canaanite or the Syrophoenician woman. There's the widow's son at Nain. Over and over in Jesus' ministry, there is this situation where young people and children are being brought to Jesus. And Jesus shows a deep concern for these children. When this man with a son, his only child, who is cruelly demon-possessed, comes to Jesus and begs for help, what's Jesus' response? Eventually, he's going to say, bring him. Bring him to me. Jesus has a deep concern for 
young people, and there are many things that we can learn from that, but I want to suggest this. If this man, in the midst of that spiritual battlefield, brought his son to Jesus, ought not we, who say we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, bring our children to him in prayer? I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. Says there are many Christian fathers and mothers at this day who are just as miserable about their children as the man of whom we are reading. The son who was once the desire of their eyes and in whom their lives were bound up turns into a spendthrift or a prodigal or a profligate and a companion of sinners. And the daughter who was once the flower of the family and of whom they said, this girl shall be our comfort in old age, becomes self-willed and worldly minded and a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God and their hearts are very well near broken. An iron seems to enter into their souls and the devil appears to triumph over them and rob them of their choicest jewels and they are ready to cry, I'll grow to my grave, sorrowing. What good shall my life do to me now? Now what should a father or mother do in a case like this, Ryle asks? They should do as the man before us did. They should go to Jesus. They should go to Jesus in prayer and cry to him about their child. They should spread before that merciful Savior the tale of their sorrows and entreat him to help them. Great is the power of prayer and intercession. The child of many prayers shall seldom be cast away. God's time of conversion may not be ours. He may think fit to prove our faith by keeping us long waiting. But so long as a child lives and a parent prays, we have no right to finally despair about that child's soul. Why did this man bring his son to Jesus? He may not have read all of the learned treatises of the rabbis, he may not have been able to explain or even understand the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. He may not have been able to lecture upon the eternal decrees of God. But somehow, even after the disciples had failed, this man knew that Jesus could intervene in a fallen world. Somehow this man knew that Jesus had authority over the demonic realm. Somehow this man knew that Jesus could help his son. Somehow this man knew that Jesus was sovereign. You think this man knew that he was living in a fallen world? You better believe it. He lived with the evidence of it. This is a fallen world, and Jesus is sovereign. Amen. And so this man took the suffering which this fallen world brought into his life, and he brought it to Jesus because this world is fallen, but Jesus is sovereign. Do you believe that? And if you believe it, do you pray like you believe it? 
Because that's what this man was doing. The difference, of course, is that Jesus was standing there in the flesh before him. But that's essentially what he was doing. He was praying. Now, don't make any unwarranted assumptions here. Remember what we've said. Jesus is sovereign. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is not subject to our whims and our desires. Jesus is not obligated to do what we want him to do. He's sovereign. And so he will do what he desires to do. Which is good because he does all things well. When we say that Jesus is sovereign, that means he will not do what we think he should do, but he will do what he knows to be good and right. What does God work together for good? Everything. All things work together for good. For those who love him, and are called according to his purpose. Can I remind you of something? This man comes to Jesus because his son is afflicted with a demon. He comes to Jesus because even after the disciples failed, the father believed that Jesus could deliver his son. But have you ever asked this question? Couldn't Jesus have prevented this in the first place? Of course he could have. He works how many things after the counsel of his will? All things. Everything. He could have stopped this, but he didn't. In the ninth chapter of John's gospel, John tells us about the day when Jesus and his disciples were heading out of the temple after yet another run-in with the authorities. And they come across this man whom John describes have, as having been blind from birth. And a conversation ensues between Jesus and the disciples concerning the cause of this terrible situation. And the disciples are positive that they have the answer. Somebody sinned. Somewhere along the line, someone sinned. They say, well, the only real question is, was it his parents or was it somehow this guy himself? I'm not sure exactly what he could have done since he was blind from birth, but the disciples aren't always thinking very rigorously. Jesus tells them they're wrong. Jesus has another explanation entirely. Jesus says this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a statement of sovereignty. This man's blindness was not a mistake. Blind from birth, and now as you continue to read through the passage, you find that he was, he's described as being of age. So he's an adult, probably somewhere around 40, 40 years in darkness. 40 years in darkness because God decreed it would be so. Because God determined it's better for this man to live in darkness for 40 years if it's going to result in my 
deeds being displayed. If it's going to result in my glory, then this man will spend 40 years in darkness. His blindness was not a mistake. There was purpose in it. This demon who came to afflict this man's son did not come in secret. He didn't do it in some way which caught God by surprise. He was an instrument in the hands of God. And whatever may be the source of your suffering this morning, you need to understand this as well. It's not a mistake. It's not happening by chance. It has not escaped the notice of God. It is his plan. And his promise is that he has a good purpose for it. Of course, that's the battle, isn't it? It's a battle to continue to walk through suffering while believing that God is not only good, but he is doing good. Your suffering is part of the good that God is doing. There's a battle going on in this passage. It's a battle for belief. It's a battle about whether the disciples are going to believe in the sovereignty and the healing power of God. Look what happens here. The man comes to Jesus, verse 40, says, I begged your disciples to cast it out. They could not. And then Jesus responds, and he says something really strange. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, why would Jesus say that? As we read it, it sounds like Jesus is rebuking the Father. But why would he do that? The, re- the Father's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He's seeking help for his son. He's doing what a good father does. I don't think the rebuke is for the father at all. I think Jesus is rebuking his disciples. He could be rebuking everybody. He talks about this generation. But I suspect that the people who are specifically in his crosshairs are his own disciples. I think Jesus' statement is connected to what the Father said. The disciples are not able to cast out the demon. And then, boom, Jesus starts talking about the unbelieving and perverted generation and and putting up with them. That's not a break, that's a continuation. Before you think I'm being too tough on the guys, remember what we read earlier. Back to verse 1. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He gave them power and authority over what? All the demons. Not a lot of them. Not all of them except this one. Jesus says, all. 
he had given his disciples authority over all demons. All were under their authority, and yet this boy is brought, and they are not able to cast him out. Jesus clearly says the reason is they didn't believe what he said. They're not believing Jesus. He says, I've given you authority over all the demons, but they didn't believe that, and so they weren't able to cast this one out. And that's the same kind of struggle that we face in regard to faith and unbelief when we are looking at our troubles. We stare them in the eye, and we are so focused on our troubles that we have trouble believing the other part of this passage that God is sovereign and that he's working all things together for good according to his own purposes so I want to ask you again do you believe that God is sovereign over your troubles because there are a lot of people who will say no there are a lot of people who will try to defend God God has nothing to do with your suffering. God has nothing to do with your trials. God has nothing to do with the trouble that comes into your life. They may not be actively lying, but they are certainly wrong. There is nothing outside of the control of God. There is nothing outside of his purposes. You and I can point fingers to the disciples and say, well, Jesus did give you authority over all the demons. Why didn't you believe him? Well, Jesus also said through the Apostle Paul that God works all things together for your good. So in your troubles, do you believe that God is doing good? Once again, we've got to be careful not to look at the disciples and say, what a bunch of losers. Because we're them. If you believe that God does all things well, if you believe that he is sovereign over these troubles, you will still be asking questions, but they'll be different questions. You're not going to be asking, why me? Because the right question in that regard is, why not me? And you won't ask that because you remember that we live in a fallen world. If you believe that God is sovereign over your troubles and you believe that God is good, you know that God is working in every circumstance of your life for his good purposes and you will trust him. If you believe that, the question you are asking is not, Lord, are you in charge? Or, Lord, are you good? Or, Lord, are you going to use this for good? If you believe these things, then the question is, Lord, what am I supposed to do right now? And, Lord, what am I supposed to learn from this? Lord, how do I live faithfully in the midst of trouble? How do I remain a faithful disciple when it seems like the world is caving in on top of me? How do I 
live faithfully in the midst of this dark providence? Those are very different questions than, Lord, are you in charge? Lord, is this happening for my good? For those of us who believe what the word of God says about who God is and how he works, those are givens. Yes, God is good. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he does all things well. Yes, this is happening to me for my good. Now what happens next is that Jesus does that which the disciples couldn't do. and He casts out the demon. End of verse 41, bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him into the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So the demon tries to do whatever damage he can before he is cast away, and the boy is delivered. But immediately following that, things take a turn. He delivers the man's son, and everyone is amazed. Amazed at the greatness of God, we're told. And then, while everyone is standing there with their jaws on the ground, being amazed at the greatness of God, Jesus turns to speak again to his disciples. And we read that while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. That's a first century way of saying this is important, you might want to take notes. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knows that these disciples have a bigger challenge on their hands than just demons. And the bigger challenge is this. Jesus is about to die. And it is vital for the disciples to understand that in his death, trouble is not bigger than the sovereignty of God. Rather, his coming death is the plan. It's the agenda. It's what had been decreed in eternity past. Yes, he is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but ultimately it's not Men who are doing the delivering. It is God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God delivered his son. It wasn't Judas. And it wasn't the high priest. And it wasn't the Sanhedrin. God did it. And in Isaiah we read that God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. So what's the point of this passage? 
Jesus is saying, disciples, when you see me delivered up and you're going to see the chief priests do it and you're going to see the Romans do it, you're going to see me delivered up, betrayed into the hands of my enemies, crucified and dead and buried. When you see that happen, don't think that your trouble is bigger than the sovereignty of God. Don't think that my trouble is bigger than the sovereignty of God or somehow outside of the sovereignty of God. Jesus is saying to his disciples, my trouble is there because of the sovereignty of God. Because of his love for you. His love for us. So in a manner of speaking he's saying you know your inability to believe that you have authority over demons even though i gave that to you is not your biggest challenge your biggest challenge to faith is to believe that god is sovereign even in my death And when you understand what was going on in Jesus' death, the only sinless person, the Son of God who had lived a perfect life, kept the law of God perfectly, entirely innocent, the spotless lamb, and yet it is in God's sovereign plan to send Jesus to the cross. The greatest crime, humanly speaking, in the history of the world. Everybody else who has ever been crucified, everybody else who has ever faced any trouble in their lives, everyone can say, All right, I'm a sinner. I shouldn't expect anything else but not Jesus. God sent his innocent son to die. So do you believe God is sovereign over your troubles? Do you look at your circumstances and see something so big and so dark that you think those circumstances are bigger than God? Or do you look at those circumstances and react like this crowd reacted? Look again at what it says in verse 43. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. It was obvious to them. You go back again to the passage I mentioned earlier in John chapter 9. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were not at all pleased that Jesus had healed this man. And they were looking for any possible way around the obvious conclusion that it was the power of God that did it. These people don't even have to discuss it. Everybody who witnessed it understood and were amazed at what? The greatness of God. There was no question in their minds that it was the power of God that accomplished this. 
Are you amazed by the greatness of God? The question really is this. In your view, which is greater, God or your troubles? How do you view your troubles in comparison to the size and the greatness and the majesty of God? Listen again to what Ryle says. Let us learn that men may understand spiritual things very feebly and yet be true children of God. The head may be very dull when the heart is right. Grace is far better than gifts and faith than knowledge. If a man has faith and grace enough to give up all for Christ's sake and take up the cross and follow him, he shall be saved in spite of much ignorance. Christ will own him on the last day. So let us learn to bear with ignorance in others, to deal patiently with beginners in the faith. Let us not make men offenders for a word. Let us not set our brother down as having no grace because he does not exhibit clear knowledge. Has he faith in Christ? Does he love Christ? These are the principal things. If Jesus could endure so much weakness in his disciples, and we'll include ourselves there, so we may surely do likewise. So the lesson in this passage is not to look around the room and see all your brothers and sisters who are struggling to believe that God is greater than their troubles. You're to be patient with them. The application of this passage is to look at your own heart and ask those questions. Do I believe that God is bigger than my troubles? That he is sovereign over my troubles? And am I going to trust him? May God enable us to fight that battle of faith. Father, it is up to you. You must empower us to do so. You must empower us to believe. Father, I know that many of my brothers and sisters are enduring great struggles right now. Give them a renewed vision of you that they might glory in your amazing greatness. And Father, may we all rest in the knowledge that you do all things well. There is nothing outside of your sovereignty. Father, we, we who are yours love you. Make us faithful disciples for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.